Hi, and welcome to week three in Equity and Trust at the Charles State University, talking about undue influence and unconscionable conduct today. So you might remember from our first module that historically equity developed as a jurisdiction of conscience, providing remedies for situations where the common law was deficient. So for example, where one party exploited their position of power over a weaker party to enter into a contract, the law nonetheless recognised, in the absence of deceit, a valid and enforceable contract, no matter how it was procured. Whereas equity, according to the maxim that equity will not suffer a wrong to be without a remedy, would evaluate the transaction and the circumstances surrounding it to determine whether it would be unfair to enforce the bargain. While at common law fraud requires an actual intention to obtain a benefit or advantage by deception or dishonesty, equity acknowledges that fraud may be committed without any dishonest intent. So in the case of innocent misrepresentations, where a person exploits a position of power or breaches an equitable obligation, and even where they are motivated by good intentions. The principles of equitable fraud operate in conjunction with other equitable doctrines such as undue influence, unconscionable conduct and estoppel, which aim to prevent a party from profiting from their own fraud. The two doctrines we're looking at today, undue influence and unconscionable or unconscientious transactions, populate the modern landscape of equity in Australia. Their influence has been so fundamental in equity that they are now reflected in statute, with the Australian Consumer Law, which provides protections for consumers against unconscionable conduct falling under the Competition and Consumer Act 2010, which refers in Section 20 to picking up the meaning of unconscionability in equity. Quote, a person must not, in trade or commerce, engage in conduct that is unconscionable within the meaning of the unwritten law from time to time, unquote. What is unconscionability? It is a transaction that's against conscience, unscrupulous and wrong, or so unfair or unjust that equity will intervene. In equity, the terms unconscionable and unconscientious are used interchangeably to represent a transaction where one party takes advantage of another party who is at a special disadvantage, whether that be by reason of poor health, age, ignorance or education or literacy, experience or commercial acumen, financial need and poverty or emotional, uh, emotional dependence. The categories are not closed and indeed may change with societal expectations. For example, in 1956, Justice Fulliger and Blomley and Ryan recognised sex as a possible disadvantage in respect of one party to another. But it's unlikely that a modern court would regard the sex or gender of the plaintiff today as a disadvantage or disability. To establish a claim of unconscionable conduct, a plaintiff must prove that they were at a special disadvantage in comparison to the other party, and that the other party knew of or should have known of the disadvantage or disability, and unconscientiously took advantage of that disability. So the level of knowledge of a weaker party's disability may be actual or constructive, as in the case of the bank manager in Commonwealth Bank of Australia and Amadio High Court case in 1983, who should have known of the disadvantage faced by their customers' parents, who gave a guarantor in favour of their son's businesses and spoke and understood very little English, were aged and depended upon their son.
A defendant can rebut a finding of unconscionable conduct by showing in most cases that the plaintiff received adequate independent legal advice to enable them to understand the nature and effect of the transaction, or by showing that the transaction was in fact fair, just and reasonable, and that adequate consideration was given. Next, we come to undue influence, which occurs when parties are in a relationship of trust and confidence and where one party exercises dominance, authority and control over the other party to a transaction to such an extent that the will of the weaker party is overborne. Historically, undue influence provided some relief from the inadequacy of the common law principle of duress, under which a contract could only be avoided if a party was induced by physical threat, whereas the doctrine of undue influence recognised that the role of a dominant party can extend far beyond physicality and the dominance or exploitation may take on different forms. So there are two categories of undue influence. First of all, presumed undue influence, where equity presumes one party has an influence over the other so that the onus is on the dominant party to justify the dealing. And secondly, actual undue influence, where the influence must be proved on the facts. Examples of relationships where undue influence is presumed include, from one to another, trustee to beneficiary, doctor to patient, solicitor to client, parent to child, guardian to ward, and religious or spiritual advisor to follower. Because of the hierarchical nature of these relationships, the presumption does not go both ways. So, for example, it's presumed that a solicitor owes, um, is in a position of influence over a client, but not vice versa. While presumed undue influence is often used to set aside transactions between parties to these relationships, it may also be used to protect the weaker party from transactions which confer a benefit on third parties, where the third party was aware of or should have been aware of the influence by the dominant person in the relationship such as in the case of Garcia and National Bank of Australia, a 1998 High Court case. Actual undue influence may arise where the parties are in a relationship involving actual influence or dominance by one over the other. Justice Dixon in the High Court 1936 case of Johnson and Buttress said the doctrine, quote, applies whenever one party occupied or assumed towards another a position naturally involving an ascendancy or influence over the other, or a dependence or trust on his or her part." Unquote. In such a case, a plaintiff must prove that the dominant party had the capacity to influence a weaker party, that the influence was exercised so that the will of the weaker party was overborne, the exercise of influence was undue, that the influence brought about the transaction and conferred a benefit on the dominant party. In the more recent case of Thorne and Kennedy, 2017, the High Court of Australia considered a claim of unconscionability and undue influence arising in the course of an engagement involving prenuptial and postnuptial agreements between a wealthy man aging his late 60s, Mr Kennedy, and a younger Eastern European woman, Ms Thorne, who met online and she later relocated to Australia to marry. The agreements aimed to prevent her obtaining any financial settlement if the two separated within a period of three years, and after that to limit her financial recovery, where no children were born to the couple, to $50,000. 
where Mr Kennedy's assets were in the many millions. The wife received strong legal advice that the agreement was improvident to her, but signed the agreements anyway. After separating within four years of marriage, the wife sought to have the agreement set aside. On appeal to the High Court of Australia, Chief Justice Kiefel, Bell, Gudgela, Keane and Edelman uh, in the majority said that whether a person is subjected to undue influence to such an extent that they have no free will involves questions of degree. Quote, but at the very least, the judgmental capacity of the party seeking relief must be markedly substandard as a result of the effect upon the person's mind of the will of another, unquote. Direct evidence on the circumstances surrounding the entering into the agreements will be relevant here. The High Court specifically rejected the argument that the fiancé-fiancé relationship ought to be recognised as a relationship of presumed undue influence, although it had been recognised in earlier cases. In regards to unconscionable conduct, the High Court held that Mr Kennedy unconscientiously took advantage of Ms Thorne's special disadvantage, which negatively affected her judgment as to her best interests to the extent that her choices about entering the agreements on Mr Kennedy's terms were subordinated to the will of Mr Kennedy, due in part to her reliance on Mr Kennedy for all things. Again, the fact of competent, professional, independent advice in relation to the nature and effect of a transaction may effectively rebut a claim of undue influence, as will evidence that the transaction was fair and reasonable or that adequate consideration has passed. Defences of lashes or undue delay and acquiescence or acceptance may also be raised to sway the discretion of a court in setting aside a transaction that took place long before a plaintiff came to court. You will note that there are some obvious overlaps between the two doctrines. While the exercise of influence in some relationships giving rise to undue influence can also be characterised as unconscionable conduct, and there is a close relationship between the two doctrines, the two are in fact distinct. An unconscionable bargain may result from an independent and voluntary act of the weaker party, but still arise from the disadvantaged position which the other party has taken advantage of. However, in the case of undue influence, the will of the weaker party is overborne by the influence of the dominant party. Justice Dean in Amadio said, undue influence looks to the quality of consent or assent of the weaker party, while un unconscionable dealing looks to the conduct of the stronger party in attempting to enforce or retain a benefit of a dealing with a person under a special disability in circumstances where it is not consistent with equity or good conscience to do so, unquote. In practice, the two doctrines are often pled in the alternative. Next week, we'll look at confidential information and estoppel.